Yes, well, now we come to the second uh, lecture in the Theater of the Absurd. And for those of you, uh, there's quite a few of you who were not here last time, I'll give a very, very uh, quick uh, resume. I began in the introduction, last time was all introduction, uh, began with tape number 50, which deals with the uh, philosophy of the 20th century American novel, and ends with compotes in cold blood with an emphasis on the anti-statement uh, basis of the way he writes and then the second lecture of uh, tape 50 dealt with writers in revolt book called writers in revolt and I dealt uh, especially with Marquis de Sade in regard to that and I pointed out, uh, then picking up and going on last time, that in regard to the Marquis de Sade, that you have something even more serious uh, than the uh, murder on the Moors, for example, recently in England, which was related to the writing of the Marquis de Sade. And that is that in Sade, you have a precursor of uh, the determine the concept of determination in man, with sod, sod being a chemical determinist, a physiological determinist. And then I pointed out, however, that sod couldn't live with his own position. Use some material on that. And thus you find a, a really a real absurd situation, remembering we're moving toward the theater of the absurd. And then I pointed out that in existential writers and in other writers parallel to existentialism, you have a constant emphasis on the absurd. That life itself is absurd, at least human existence is absurd. But that this absurdity is always expressed in very beautiful language with the existential writers, say uh, Camus and uh, Sartre. So you have very beautiful language, normal syntax, normal grammar, normal vocabulary, but expressing the absurd. And then I used uh, Simon de Beauvoir's uh, an easy death at this point. Also touched on Papa Hemingway and the end of his his world of absurdity and yet again in this tremendous prose of Papa, Papa Hemingway. Then we switched over to the double neos uh, in the Italian cinema with an emphasis again on absurdity in the deep sense the deep sense of the absurdity uh, in the sense that you could ask questions and make statements but there are never any answers which is very much related as we'll see to the theater of the absurd but normally in, in a normal setting until you get to something like uh, Juliet of the Spirits with Fellini in which you move over not only to have an, a statement of the absurd but in a very absurd presentation. So nobody can figure out at all uh, where reality stops and where 
fantasy begins. So here you have an additional note now, in contrast to the existential writers, let's say, and that is absurdity state stated in that which may be thought of as an absurd way. We went then went on to Catch-22 and James Bond, especially as analyzed by John Carey. We mentioned something of Pop and Warhol, but then ended with Francis Bacon and this rather long essay on Francis Bacon uh, in, this, uh, uh, in this publication uh, of, uh, on Bacon uh, by John Russell. And I left it as to which kind of absurdity his painting was. You could uh, People would have very different opinions. Some people would say it's in a statement an absurd world, which now we're not guessing that that's what he means because there are enough quotes in this in the beginning of this essay to be quite clear. Uh, an absurd world, just the same as these other men are stating absurdity. But perhaps also some people would feel that his very painting, while great painting in some respects, yet nevertheless has elements of absurdity in it. And as such, if that were the case, then you would have both kinds of absurdity. Uh, I would leave it open to the individual as to decide for Francis Bacon for himself, whether it's an absurd statement uh, in a non-absurd way or an absurd statement in an absurd one. It doesn't change the philosophy, but nevertheless, uh, it does make a great deal of difference in the... Uh, in the presentation, and whether the thing is related to the theater or the uh, observed or not. Those of you who were supper tonight, uh, I took off my other records for a while, as those of you who are immediately under my room recognize, and I put on Boulet and Stockhausen, uh, this, this disc. And in it, you have the same sort of thing, very definitely, I feel, in music. I feel there's a real absurdity in this music. One can debate about the technical excellence and these other things, and yet it seems to me there's a real real relationship uh, in, in what is presented, in the fact uh, of their tremendous theories which they present. Very different from John Cage's music, and yet some relationship to it in outlook, and I think it is very, um, very striking that on the, in this particular disc of Stockhausen uh, and Boulet uh, that they use a front piece of uh, Carl Apple, Woman and the Ostrich, and then they very carefully uh, put on the back uh, of this disc, uh, it's a Phillips, a picture of Carl Apple, and. Uh, you remember we have done something with this music tape of his, uh, which actually Dr. Rookmacher sent me originally, uh, on the uh, the uh, cinema made on his painting. But we have the soundtrack. I do feel this is this is related. Uh, I don't want to go into the musical side tonight, as always in musical things, it's more difficult to deal with in a way. And yet I do feel that there is a real element in the musical world as well that's parallel to the statement of, uh, of absurdity or at least the smashing uh, of all the normal ways of looking at things so you're left uh, naked and breathless. Now tonight, I have one more uh, thing in introduction to the theater of the absurd, 
and usually I try to work from sources themselves or immediate quotations. But uh, this is an interesting letter that I wanted to bring to you from a uh, from a Farrellhoff student who has taken his PhD in Germany at the present time, and a uh, he's been here as a Farrellhoff student. And as such, he sent me a letter, which so tied in with the theater of the absurd, I thought it was worthwhile spending time on it, even though it, we may not therefore get through these lectures tonight. This lecture tonight, we might have to uh, take a third one. In this, he quotes from a book, The Modern Theater of Protest and Paradox by George Wellworth, New York University Press, 1964. I've never seen this book, but we ought to try to, uh, we ought to try, somebody ought to do some work on it. The Modern Theater of Protest and Paradox by George Wellworth, New York University Press, 1964. Um... He's the boy who wrote, says he was deeply struck by the analysis of this book and feels that I would be very interested in it in confirming much of your analysis of the contemporary situation in general as well as the particular analysis of Marimbaud, the last year Marimbaud, for example. Uh, he says he doesn't mention this uh, the last year at Marimbaud, but nevertheless discusses the same type of situation and then uh, says that it deals with Beckett, Inesco, Genet, and so on. That being the case, you see, you're dealing with exactly the same people that we want to deal with in the theater of the absurd. These are the theater of the absurd people. Though the book I want to use is this very outstanding book by Martin Eslin. I'll take a couple hours on his book, starting in a little while. But uh, this man... Uh, is dealing with the same problem, George Wellworth. But this man reaches back into the past of what he feels, that is, Wellworth reaches in the past of what he feels is the history, uh, back of uh, the theater of the absurd. And in doing this, it sounds almost like a theater of the absurd play. It's a play within a play within a play. Well, this is a, a book within a book within a book, apparently. I start with a boy who writes to me, and he quotes from the modern theater of protest and paradox. And in that book, he quotes uh, from, uh, he reaches back into Anto uh, Antonin Artu, A-R-T-A-U-D, and his book, The Theater of, and it's double, which quotes from Alfred Jarry. I've never done anything so far back, but nevertheless, it's all. So, it's very appropriate, actually, to the theater of the absurd, or studying the Marquis de Sade and uh, Marquis, the plot Marquis Sade, because it's exactly the same uh, same thing he used it. Murat Sade, rather. So now then we have... Uh, remember these steps. Don't get confused. This isn't, I'm not trying to confuse you. It only sounds so at this moment. Um, this boy is quoting from George Wellworth, who quotes back uh, from uh, to R2, the theater and its double, and R2 says that the beginning of all this is Alfred, uh, A-L-F-R-E-D, Jari, J-A-R-R-Y. Now, I'm not vouching then for how accurate all this is, but it's interesting and fits certainly into the, a careful study of the absurd, uh, as we shall see as we go on. So what's being said here, uh, whether it's an accurate quotation in every step back, really doesn't matter because it throws light on exactly the thing I want to point out with the theater of the absurd. 
Now he says here, oh yes, to make it more interesting, he says that this book uh, is out of print, so we're in good shape. <laughs> uh, we're in really good, good shape here. Uh, so you can become the expert on this book by quoting me after all this. Um, Jerry, that's Alfred Jerry now, as characterized by Wellworth, was a rebel who rebelled against everything. And uh, that sounds reasonable because it fits into these men's mentality. Remembering even Gauguin's remark as he painted his what whence whither uh, uh, in the, uh, at the end that he says, I just cry, I revolt. Always vanquished, I revolt. From that time on, Gauguin, you have this. It's a, a revolt which is a very profound revolt because it's a revolt against everything. <coughs> and uh, Jarry, as characterized by Warworth, was a rebel who rebelled against everything. Quote, the ultimate rebel who insisted on building up his own dream world after completely rejecting all existing reality. Now this is very interesting because really this is very, very close to, say, a, a UNESCO in his plays. So he rejects reality, and then he builds up his own dream world. And in painting, you can feel the same thing as a man trying to make his own universe on his canvas, out of, away from God's world. He rejects all the normal relationships with God's world, and he tries to make his own world on his canvas. Well, in a very real way, uh, what's being pictured here is Jari doing the same thing uh, in his, uh, his concept of drama, which is really exactly what, of course, Inesco does something like rhinoceros. Something like this. Uh, his rebellion against thought was particularly striking. Now here you come back to really what is at the heart uh, of the uh, theater of the absurd and all this sort of thing. His, his rebellion against thought, what we're really into, and this is where it touches the new religious theologies, uh, is in the fact that what is being, and back of course um, as far as Heidegger, the new Heidegger is a uh, is an attack on thought itself. Now we're really getting back into the middle of all this. This this attack on thought took the form of a straight-faced ag uh, uh, advocating of a science invented by Jari, the supreme science of patrophysics. This is defined as the science of imaginary solutions which symbolically attributes to the per, uh, properties of objects described by their uh, virtuality to their lineaments. It's a tricky sentence. And I don't, it isn't supposed to mean anything. This is a thing you must understand. Uh, as I go through this, I want to try to show something, though, and that is, though, in one way you can say it isn't supposed to say anything. In another way, it says a great deal by saying nothing. This is the secret of all this at the end of the road, in a sense. It isn't that they don't say nothing in their nonsense. They really say something very profound, finally, in their nonsense. As Wellworth describes it, it is dedicated to the use of strict logic in order to arrive at a senseless conclusion. Now, this, you see, is very, very close, actually, now to the theater of the absurd. And you can see why uh, it is uh, the father of it. And is Jari's protest against the futility of thought so the charge, again, is against the futility of rational, logical thought. Quote, Reason and logic and scientific discovery can only bring us up to a certain point of knowledge. Beyond that point, the human mind is powerless. 
This is all a direct quote. Since that point is the only point that really matters, the understanding of death, Jari felt that all thought was self-defeating and ultimately ridiculous. This is very intriguing because he says, well, the one thing we don't arrive at with our rationalism is a real answer, uh, is an answer to the real question, is the problem of death. And so, therefore, why hold to it in anything? And I would relate this very expressly in my lectures uh, to the death of rationalism. Not that which is rational. You must always remember my distinction. The rational merely means that which is sensible, that which follows the rationality of antithesis. But rationalism is a very different situation. Rationalism means beginning from yourself absolutely. And just as following Kant, philosophy decided that it wasn't going to come up to any answers and moved into the, uh, into the area of dialectics and synthesis rather than antithesis in its epistemology. So here we find Jari back in the area of the theater is saying the same thing. Rationalism has failed. Rationalism has not given us a sufficient answer. Rationalism has not given us an optimistic area in, as a, in, a, in knowledge as a closed system. And now a man like Jari would turn and say, if he can't do this, why, why trust it at all? Why not just curse and swear against rationality? Why not smash it? And those of you who have studied the, uh, the later Heidegger will be very aware of what's involved in this, the, his claimed fall uh, at the time of Aristotle. It's the same thing, you see. It's related all to the same thing. The, the intriguing thing is that, of course, in all these subjects, one finds that there, you don't need many keys to really understand them. Very, very rapidly, you find that you're in the same area. Now, all this is in contrast, of course, to the, to the Marxian answer. The Marxian answer says, don't think about all this because the state gives you a sufficient answer. The state gives you a sufficient answer. These arbitrary absolutes that we will set up, that we can change them, the party line will shift, but nevertheless, uh, we will set them up. The concept of law, as Terry Southern pointed out, as I've quoted several times, the concept of law as held in the, uh, in the communist states, the Marxian states, in contrast to the Western concept, as Terry Southern says, the integration point being just psychology. So the communists have tried not to fall into this by putting a limited meaning, uh, a limited meaning on the individual in reference to the state. But as soon as you uncork this with their poets um, and so on, they're in the same problem. It's the real reason that many of the men who were already thinking this way in Russia uh, prior to the revolution thought the revolution would be helpful to them, and yet they had to flee because there was no place in the Russian Revolution for them, really, because the Russian Revolution was going to set up this arbitrary series of absolutes. And it's only now that they're being challenged by their art, by the students beginning to tap on the desks, uh, by uh, someone like Adam Schaff beginning to ask questions concerning uh, uh, socialistic humanism. But having made the distinction, let's come back to the West, because that's what we're dealing with. And in the West, we find, therefore, the breakdown of rationalism has led men to turn in a different way. And the first step is the challenge of rationality. So as I pointed out in my philosophic lectures, the intriguing, intriguing thing is that bef uh, before Hegel, being rationalistic and also hoping for a rational answer, Confronted with a choice between these two, they have given up their rationality, 
linked in language especially. Uh, and first of all in epistemology thinking in antithesis and then in language they've been willing to give up their rationality in order to keep their rationalism it's a very intriguing thing I keep pointing out very very sharp a very sharp illustration of Romans 1 surely always so now we find going back to Jari this is what he's done he's just said well uh, we haven't come up with answers to the real question of death and who am I all these things so we will just uh, we will say that uh, thought is, in the old sense, in any real sense, is self-defeating and ultimately ridiculous. So we will just cast it away. Now this letter goes on in describing uh, coming closer to um, from Jari to R2, A R T A U D or R2. Formulated Jari's rebellion as a rebellion of protest against all culture, which he regarded as a superficial overlay, covering up reality. The task of drama is to uncover the core of reality in man, hidden so long, by stripping away the layers of artificiality. It would go very well with Heidegger, I would point out, the later Heidegger. Then we come to a direct quote. To Arto, this core was pure emotion, and the emotion was latent. In structural, in, uh, instinctual savagery, he perceived that men are, as they always have been, basically barbaric, and that the thick protective wall of urbane civilized behavior they have acquired through centuries of hiding from psychological self-realization is easily crumbled by a forcible appear to irrational emotion. End of quote. So now he pictures here. This is just there's. Uh, here's evolutionary man and he's covered over with a little veneer and if you just challenge him he's back in his barbaric state Arto felt that drama's purpose is to provide this forcible appeal to irrational emotion as Wellworth points out the obscurity of the avant-garde drama is due to the fact that the average spectator quote tries to analyze that is bonding and participating emotionally end quote now then, let's notice that this really is related to Francis Bacon's own statements about his painting, again. Because you remember, Francis Bacon says, uh, uh, in concerning his painting, there is a difference, as Bacon has said, between paint, quote, which comes across directly onto the nervous system, and the paint which tells the story in a long, a long diatribe through the brain. Society tries, and then the, the uh, John Russell continued to remember, society tries to transfer Bacon's less palatable pictures to the brain, but the paint insists on speaking directly to the nerves. Now really this is saying the same thing. What we're up against here is the, is the, uh, the first order experience. We're back into the first order experience. So you have the same thing again, and that is that uh, Aldous Huxley would have dealt with. And this is the factor: rationality is going to give us not going to give us an answer. Rationality only leads to man being a machine. Rationality leads to to no meaning whatsoever for man. And how are we going to get this then? Well, the projected first order experience, the LSD experience. Uh, remember, I've been relating this as we went along. Uh, uh, to uh, McLuhan, the um, let's see how it's yes McLuhan, M C L U H A N, the University of Toronto. It's new 
from the new communications, his hot and cool communications. The interesting thing is when you begin to think about this, you find it on every side today. The, the very thing that McLuhan is emphasizing, that we're past the period of uh, hot communications, hot communications being to Malunhan that which comes in the area of content, that which comes in the area of the printed word especially, that which you have to think about in order to have the communication. And he calls that hot communication, and he says now we're coming into the era of the cool communication, where you have a direct transference. Well, the, there's a real relationship between this and the seeking the LSD experience. and. There is certainly a terrific relationship between this uh, and what uh, Arto points out on the uh, to be the uh, the place of the new new theater. It's really very closely related. If you try to figure out the play, you've made the mistake. You just sit there and you remove you receive the emotional shock of the play, a direct communication without content. Very terrifying, of course, because it really is sublineal. It really deeps, it deals in the deep unconscious realm of man. And as we'll see in the theater of the absurd, in, the, in this book by Essling, at least one play person has related it to Carl Gustav Jung's uh, concept of, uh, of the archetypes. And of course, knowing how I feel that uh, our danger is this very thing in our culture, uh, you can see drama's place in it as the painter is taking, is, takes his place in it or the musician takes his place in it. As we shall see, though, they destroy communication in the normal sense. It is a long cry from, from destroying communication. This is where we'll end up in our study of the absurd. The destroying of communication in the normal sense, the, sub, the, the sense that's open to the control, the French word control, of rationality and logic. But that's a, that doesn't mean that they have destroyed communication. It's a communication on a new level, which is, which is a, a, I think, a very fearsome thing to contemplate. And uh, Wellworth goes on, speaking of Arto. Speech in the theater is not to be used for the communication and rational thought, but to evoke response, instinctive emotion. Here it is, just sheer, naked, cool communication, along with a specific and definite devaluation of speech. And down at the end of the letter, we find that quotes Arto again, saying or speaking of Arto, wanted to bring back drama to its original function of hypnotizing the audience into a frenzied communication with the action. To strike not at the brain, but at the core of the human soul. End of quote, page 132-133. Now, of course, anyone who, who feels this, the hypnotizing of the audience, of course, there's always something of this in a good drama, but this is deeper. It's, it's made the purpose of the whole uh, when deliberately uh, breaking away from thought. So you break away from thought and anything open to control in rational, logical thought, in normal communication, and instead of this, you just allow the drama to be a naked statement in such a way that you hypnotize the audience uh, in, with the action. And, of course, anybody who's following the new LSD uh, trip situation will, will immediately feel a parallel here. This is the, a first-order experience. Aldous Huxley's first-order experience with a drug or with a theater now has become merely a matter of means and, uh, and not of ideas. You have an exact parallel. Aldous Huxley really knew what he was doing in his concept of the first-order experience. 
Now, the interesting thing is, of course, that the LSD people are specifically pursuing this. That the LSD people, now that in the United States they've taken a one-year moratorium on the use of LSD, that is, Leary and the others, are now fighting to get these same experiences by other means. So the interesting thing is, uh, they realize there is this, and they had this big thing out in San Francisco where they tried to have sort of a mass hypnotic situation. Uh -huh. But R2 and these other men are saying, you, you, there's another way to get at this, and that is through the theater. That is through the theater. And I would agree with them. Incidentally, I would very strongly link it with television because I think television can carry this across with remarkable clarity and force, which makes it more discouraging and frightening. Because if it was shut up to the theater uh, in a few theaters in Paris, very few people would, uh, would be affected. But when you can carry it down on a BBC program right up into the Midlands, uh, then you've really got something. And surely this is where we are. Remembering that the LSD first order experience then is one way uh, to have this direct kind of a situation, but there's other ways. And uh, the other ways would be in drama, but not only dramas, we'll see. You can use it in prose the same way. I have an example in prose that I think does this exceedingly well. I don't know if we'll get to it tonight or not. Therefore, let's notice we come to three steps. First of all is a statement of absurdity, but using normal language. That would be Sartre, Camus, Zeman de Beauvoir, etc. A statement of absurdity, absur life is absurd but using normal language. Secondly, a statement of absurdity but directly presented as absurdity by devaluating language. This is a step further out, you see. Not just absurdity, but absurdity directly presented uh, in an absurd way with a devaluation of language. And then thirdly, however, using all this to project a first-order experience. Now these are the three steps I want to deal with through the theater of the absurd. Absurdity stated in the normal way, that is an unabsurd way. Absurdity directly presented as, a, as an absurd situation. And this is related to the devaluation language. But then beyond that, using all this as, a, as an instrument for first-order experience. Now what we've done then, you remember, is to step back through this letter, and I hope somebody will do some work on this book. It sounds fine, worth doing, well worth. And he quotes R2, the theater and its double, which reaches back and tells us the ideas of Alfred Jarry, J-A-R-R-Y. Now this brings us then to the book, uh, which all this is an introduction. And that is The Theater of the Observed uh, by Martin Eslin, E-S-L-S-L-I-N. Everybody ought to have a copy of this, really. It's worth having. The Theater of the Observed by Martin Eslin, E-S-S-L-I-N. And it costs $1.45. And it's a double-day anchor original. It's nice. It's put out in the paperback. A note on Martin Eslin. 
uh, in the front of this book. Martin Eslund was born in Hungary and grew up in Vienna. He majored in English and philosophy at the University of, v of Vienna and attended the Reinhardt the uh, Theatrical Seminar, where he studied to be a director. Just as he was on the point of starting his theatrical career, in 1938 the Nazis moved into Vienna and he was forced to leave. He spent a year in Brussels, then came to England, where he became a scriptwriter and producer for the BBC. He has written for the BBC a large number of radio features on political, social, and literary subjects, and is at present head of its radio drama department. He is the author of Wreck, The Man and His Work. Now, this is intriguing for those of you who are in England. It means when you've turned on, um, uh, when you've listened to this on the radio, what you've had is his philosophy. It's very simple. And he's a master at knowing how to use drama to say what he wants to say. So it isn't something far off, something merely in some dirty little theater that most people don't attend. But if you've lived in Britain, you have had it on your wireless. It's as simple as this. And as we read this, we see that he has a philosophy and he understands how to project it very, very well in the use of theater. It's just no doubt to my, in my mind at all that BBC has been a real instrument in, uh, in influencing uh, Britain in this direction. I'm just convinced. If you have to choose between the American radio and television and the BBC, it gets pretty tough going to make a choice because the American is so nothing and uh, so so escapist and so poor uh, and the BBC is so good and then it's just as I pointed out with the cinema it's the good pictures that are the bad pictures it's the good pictures that are the bad pictures because the good pictures are escape the bad, pic um, the bad pictures are escape the good pictures are almost universally carrying a message, Schlesinger, Fellini, and so on. Now it's the same here. I would say the BBC, therefore, is much better than the American television and, ra and radio. We have radio, you have wireless, of course. <laughs> Tremendous <laughs> difference. Uh, but having said that, uh, I would say that the escape is less, uh, less vicious. I find it intriguing that he's held this position on the on the BBC. Now, the book is divided up into really three sections. First of all, an introduction in which Essling uses Roman numerals, running up to 22, and then dealing with, uh, then dealing with uh, uh, different people who make up the theater of the absurd, and what he says is the origin of the theater of the absurd. And then conclusion, in the conclusion beginning with 290, the significance of the absurd. And that runs from 290 to 316. So really what you have is an introduction which gives you what he thinks, then examples, and then his conclusion. And I'm especially interested in Martin Nestling's own analysis in the introduction and then in the conclusion. So we'll spend much more time on that than the contents of the book, which makes a big, thick book. Now, and uh, in page, then, Roman numerals uh, 19, introduction, the absurdity of the absurd is the 
is the title of the introduction. He speaks of what, what the word absurd has come to mean, which is a very important thing to understand. Absurd originally means out of harmony in a musical context. Hence, its dictionary definition, quote, out of harmony with reason or propriety, incongruous, unreasonable, or logical, end of quote. In common usage in the English-speaking world, absurd may simply mean ridiculous, but this is not the sense in which Camus uses the word, and in which it is used when we speak of the theater of the absurd. In an essay on Kafka, Inesco defined his understanding of the term as follows, quote, and I'll read it slowly. Absurd is that which is devoid of purpose. Cut off from his religious, metaphysical, and transcendental roots, man is lost. All his actions become senseless, absurd, useless. So you must always remember these people really, I keep saying it over and over again, these people really know what they're doing. Anybody thinks that just a heap of nonsense is really ridiculous. The men who really are blazing the way in every one of these fields, whether it's Francis Bacon in his paintings, uh, whether it's McLuhan in his, uh, in his uh, communications, whether it is a man like, uh, like Inesco in his drama, they really know what they're doing. They're not foolish men. They're not beating the dark. They're not just doing something to do it. They, they know, they have an idea why they're doing it. It's very interesting, of course, that this is written on, in this essay on Kafka. That, too, is important. Because Kafka stands in the same stream. Absurdity, therefore, is that which is devoid of purpose. That man, no longer having religious, metaphysical, or transcendental roots, man is lost. His act, all his actions, be, and notice the all. It's important, it's all. It isn't just some. It isn't something peripheral. It's all his actions become senseless, absurd, useless. Or, of course, as I've, uh, he's quote, he quotes Camus, but one could quote Sartre just as well uh, in this thing. I keep saying because I think it just thrusts it home, and I hope you never forget Sartre's position, which is quite true, of course. And that is, a finite point has no meaning unless it has an infinite reference point. And this sort is absolutely right. Nobody has found how to get over this hurdle. A finite point has no meaning unless it has an infinite reference point. And modern man no longer even has the hope of an infinite reference point. Consequently, all is useless. To run on, and I'm going to read large sections of this book, this, this, because I think it's a value as such, even if it takes us quite a time. Uh, this sense of metaphysical anguish at the absurdity of the human condition is, broadly speaking, the themes of the play of Beckett, uh, Adov, Nesco, Genet, and the other writers discussed in this book, but is not merely the subject matter that defines what is here called the theater of the absurd, a similar sense of the senselessness of life or the inevitable devaluation of ideals, purity, and purpose, is also the theme of such a dramatist, and he names some others, including Sartre and Camus himself. Yet these writers differ from the dramatists of the absurd in an important respect. They present their sense of the irrationality of the human condition in the form of highly lucid and logical constructed reasoning, logically constructed reasoning. And then in contrast, while the theater of the observed strives to express its sense of the senselessness of the human condition uh, and the inadequacy 
of rational of the irrational approach by the open open abandonment of rational devices and discursive thought. So you, you see here you move from the first to the second. You can have people stating think life is absurd, but in a non-absurd way. These people go one step further. They're going to uh, state the absurd in an absurd way. And he says, this is what makes up the theater of the absurd. There are lots of other people doing the same thing who don't belong to the theater of the absurd. But these are the theater of the absurd. This is what technically he makes the theater of the absurd to mean, which I think is all right. While Sartre or Camus expressed the new content of, in the old convention, the theater of the absurd goes a step further in trying to achieve a unity between its basic assumptions and the form in which they are expressed. In some senses, the theater of Sartre and Camus is less adequate as an expression of the philosophy of Sartre and Camus in artistic, as distinctive from philosophic terms, than the theater of the absurd. And I quite agree. In other words, the theater of the absurd can say what Sartre wants to say better than Sartre can say it, because they have a better instrument for it. They have devised a better instrument. They have devised an absurd instrument to speak of absurdity. The beautiful phrasing and argumentative brilliance of both Sartre and Camus in their relentless probing still, by implication, proclaim a tacit conviction that logical discourse can offer valid solutions, that the analysis of language will lead to the uncovering of basic concepts, platonic ideas. This is an inner contradiction that the dramatists of the absurd are trying by instinct and intuition rather than by conscious effort to overcome and resolve. The theater of the observe has renounced arguing about the absurdity of the human condition. It merely presents it in being. That is, in terms of concrete stage images of the absurdity of existence. Now, this is a very important thing where he says back there that it would seem to listen to Camus and Sartre as though if you just could analyze language, you, you, you get finally to platonic ideas or ideals. The theater of the absurd has gone far, further and said that's an absurd such idea too. So immediately, uh, those of you who are wrestling with linguistic analysis and semantics will realize that this is, this is very closely related uh, to word games. It's very closely related. And later, this man shows his understanding of that fact. It is this striving for integration between the subject matter and the form in which it is expressed that separates the theater of the observed from the existentialist theater. The theater of the absurd must also be distinguished from another important and parallel trend in contemporary French theater, which is equally preoccupied with the absurdity and uncertainty in the human condition. That is, the poetic avant-garde theater. So now he distinguishes it from both the existentialist theater and the so-called poetic avant-garde theater of Paris. He speaks a little bit of the poetic avant-garde theater, but I'll skip that, and then come to this. The poetic avant-garde relies on fantasy and dream reality as much as the theater of the absurd does. It also disregards such traditional axioms as that, uh, as that of the basic unity and consistency of each character or the need for a plot. Now you notice he says here both of them have this in common, and that is they don't try to seek for a consistent character of any, one char of, any of the characters, or they don't, uh, neither of them have a plot. Yet, basically, the poetic avant-garde represents a different mood. It is more lyrical and far less violent and grotesque. Even more important is its different attitude toward language. The poetic avant-garde rely, uh, relies, to a far greater extent, on consciously poetic speech, 
It aspires to play uh, to plays that are in effect poems, images composed of a rich web of verbal associations. Notice the drive on words. I keep saying in my lectures, linguistics is a real thing today. This is where the battle's being fought on both and both sides of the channel. Then he says this, in contrast, the theater of the absurd, on the other hand, tends toward a radical devaluation of language. So here we come. The devaluation of language. A little further down on the same page, the theater of the absurd is thus part of the anti-literary movement of our time. Again, I would just keep saying to you, don't think these men don't understand. Don't think they don't understand. They really do understand the antis. The anti-statement literature, the anti-state, the anti-statement or the anti-philosophy, the anti-theology—it's the same thing. As I've used these terms in my various lectures, an anti-philosophy that doesn't attempt to make really a the same thing that the old philosophy search for, and that is a total meaning of life. An anti-theology that lives in this dichotomy we talk about all the time here the two levels. So he understands the theater of the absurd is thus part of the anti-literary movement of our time, which has found its expression in abstract painting, with its rejection of literary elements in pictures, or the new novel in France, with its reliance on the description of objects and its rejection of empathy. And uh, there's a little bit more to his introduction, but that's his introduction. Now, I'll deal with just a tiny little bit of the, of the, of the book itself, uh, just a little bit about Beckett and about Inesco, though he goes on for a long, long time in analyzing the various plays. Samuel Beckett, The Search for the Self. And it's very important to see that on his cover, he puts Beckett first. Beckett is the big name, quite properly, I think. Samuel Beckett. And under that, Inesco. Samuel Beckett is more is certainly the, the theater of the absurd man. You must remember that Waiting for Godot was first written in French, though he himself is Irish. It's related very much to the French thinking. It tells a little bit about Samuel Beckett here that he comes from a Protestant Irish middle class background same thing all over again just scream in anguish and say oh if we could only have if we could have had a real a real uh, answer for these men at the right moment what might have happened what might have happened nothing maybe maybe because maybe they really hate God but you always have to say well maybe maybe really they never heard anything from his Protestant Irish middle class background. Maybe he never really heard anything worth listening to. One would not be surprised that that might be the case. He relates much of something of his personal life and speaks of his relationship to Joyce's uh, daughter Lucia, which is interesting, of course. He is tied in with Joyce. James Joyce has a real relationship to him. But then more interesting is Peggy Guggenheim. And Peggy Guggenheim, of course, is the woman who almost single-handedly financed the birth of modern art in New York City. And uh, she, too, knew what she was doing, not just in this terrific collection she has now that some of you saw 
in London a couple of years ago, or down on the, in Venice, but she really understood what she was doing in, in setting up this, in her selling these pictures at the first, and supporting these people financially. And she had a love affair with uh, Beckett, which is very intriguing. I want to read a little bit about this. Because uh, she, as his lover, um, has this to say about Beckett in his personality. Peggy Guggenheim, patron of the arts and a famous collector of modern paintings, was herself, as she reports in her memoirs, terribly in love with Beckett a few years later. She describes him as a fascinating young man, but afflicted with an apathy that sometimes kept him in bed till mid-afternoon, with whom it was difficult to converse. It isn't quite funny because he's like his own characters. He really has no purpose in life. And having no purpose in life, what in the world in his use is getting up? The, this is, the game can be played very hard at this place. We've had people here or been in contact with people who literally have stopped getting up. And it's my expression, what's the use standing in the queue if there's no meaning to it all? What really is the use standing in the queue if there's no meaning to it all? There's a difference. There, there are lots of people who are lazy and like to stay in bed, but that's very different from a very bright and sharp man who's not a carabiche, who just doesn't get up because there's nothing to get up for. That isn't to be confused. So you must say, in a way, these men are the poets. These are the non-cabbages. The angry young men, same thing. The line I use so often about John Osborne, an idealist who can't find an ideal. These people are the, the very antithesis of the bourgeois cabbage, the very antithesis of the upper middle class uh, person who walks in a circle and it never occurs to him he's walking in the circle. And as we'll see, this is, this is what Essling says is one purpose of the theater of the absurd, is to just, just to hurt people like this. So maybe they'll think about something. And then you almost think, well, then if you hurry up and give us the second act, the first act might be a pretty good act, if you really could hurt these people who, who really never think about anything. The people who don't know the difference between purpose and plans. It'd be a good thing to hurt them. That's, that would be a good thing to do, and then have a second act to your play. But, of course, the trouble with the theater of the absurd, it never gets beyond the first act. There is never a second act. That's the difference. Maybe if we were writing a Christian play, uh, the, the, the first act could look like the theater of the absurd, as long as you put on a second act. Or maybe even an entire second play. Two weeks later. But here you have these people, then, are, are, not, are not cabbages. And going on with Peggy Guggenheim, sometime kept him in bed till after mid-afternoon, uh, with whom it was difficult to converse, as, quote, he was never very animated, animated, uh, and it took hours and lots of drink to warm him up before he un finally unraveled himself, end of quote. Beckett, according to Peggy Guggenheim, quote, had retained a terrible memory of life in his mother's womb. He was, certainly, he was constantly suffering from this in an awful crisis, when he felt he was suffocating. He always said our life, uh, he always said, Peggy Guggenheim's going on, he always said our life would be all right one day, but if I ever pressed him to make a decision, it was fatal. And he took back everything he had previously said. So you see, he really is like his own characters. If Samuel Beckett is not doing this then just merely uh, as a way to sell his play. Some people do this, don't they? 
cheap commercialization that does the shocking thing merely to sell the play, sell the painting. But these people are not like this. These first-class people, really, this is their philosophy of life. To use my, to use my expression, validity, there is, of uh, that which is valid in art, uh, a relationship, an honest relationship between the way the, what the man says and what he himself thinks and is. Well, in this case, then you'd have to say, all right, then Beckett has validity, if you want to use that term. Or think of another. It doesn't matter. Um, he goes on a little bit later about language in Beckett's plays. Language in Beckett's plays serves to express the breakdown, the disintegration of language. That's a tremendous sentence. Language in Beckett's plays serves to express the breakdown, the disintegration of language. So he uses language to express the disintegration of language. Where there is no certainty, there can be no definite meanings. And the impossibility of ever attaining certainty is one of the main themes of Beckett's plays. He quotes a a Gessner, Nicholas Gessner, who has tabulated ten different modes of disintegration of language observable in Waiting for Godot. Um, and I won't bother with those ten, because the next paragraph is more important. But more important than any mere formal signs of the disintegration of language and meaning in Beckett's plays is the nature of the dialogue itself, which again and again breaks down, because no truly dialectical exchange of thought occurs in it either through a loss of meaning of single words or through the inability of characters to remember what has just been said. In a purposeless world that has lost its ultimate objectives, dialogue, like all action, becomes a mere game to pass the time. Now then, let's tie that. Remember what Francis Bacon said. Francis Bacon, according to this essay, uh, in a direct quotation, Says, you, says here, this is a direct quote from, from Bacon, Francis Bacon, You see, painting has become, all art has become a game by which man distracts himself. You may say it's always been like that, but now it's entirely a game. Well, this is true. It isn't a happy game. That's different. It isn't a happy game. But one is reminded uh, of, the, uh, of the tremendous gamemanship that one finds among the really bright students at Cambridge and Oxford, let's say. Gamemanship, just filling up the time, because that's all there is to do. And uh, I was reading something recently that was talking about the sexual life, and it says uh, people, young people don't learn bridge anymore. They play sex games. And this is related to this. Everything is destroyed by merely being a game, a game to fill up the time. That isn't all there is to this, but it's a part of it. To say that's all there is would be foolish, but it's surely a part of it. You, you fill up a vacuum uh, by various forms of gamemanship, just simply because you're here and you've got to do something with it until it's finished. The clock keeps ticking on, and somehow or other you've got to fill it up. It's not a happy game. Don't make a mistake. When we think of game, we think of soccer, uh, uh, cricket, football, whatever game you're interested in, skiing, and it's kind of a happy situation, a vacation situation. Well, that isn't this meaning of gamemanship as I've just used it. Gamemanship is the very opposite of the vacation holiday period. Uh, it is the fact that that's all there is, which is very different. And, of course, 
Philosophy has largely become a gamemanship. Linguistics is a gamemanship. And surely theology has become gamemanship in most places. So he goes on and he says, in a purposeless world that has lost its ultimate objectives, dialogue like all action becomes a mere game to pass the time. In other words, what difference does it make, you see? Of course, it's related to Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, uh, authenticating yourself by an act of the will. It doesn't matter which direction you move. It's an all-moral situation. But you, you, you do it because here you are. The big factor is these men don't know who they are, why they're here, and they're taken by surprise that they are here, and they have to do something about it. Again, the Sartre statement that the basic philosophic question is why there's anything rather than nothing. And then you can make that personal. Why am I here instead of not being here? But if, going on a little further, but if Beckett's use of language is designed to devaluate language as a vehicle of conceptional thought or as an instrument for the communication of ready-made answers to the problems of the human condition, his continued use of language must paradoxically be regarded as an attempt to communicate on its own part to communicate the incommunicable. Now, this is the next step. You remember what I said? I said that there was a breakdown of language, but nevertheless, they, have, they really are communicating. I've already said that. Um... A little further on, the recognition of the illusionariness and absurdity of ready-made solutions and prefabricated meanings, far from ending in despair, is the starting point of a new kind of consciousness. This is a very tricky little piece. And you remember, uh, those of you who have heard my lecture on writers in revolt, that I point out that Terry Sutherland, the man who wrote the candy things, uh, the, uh, the magic Christian candy Christian and so on that he says very clearly that this is the reason we write pornographic material we write pornographic material because uh, though it smashes everything in another way we're just hoping that there'll be an ethic of a golden age that'll fall out sounds fantastic unless you think it through but this is very deep in, in their mentality they really can't live with their own position they may be nihilists they may be anarchists but they can't live with this and so you have this uh, this this hopeless hoping something will fall out and at the end of this we will be we will deal with this more expressly a little further on Beckett's entire work can be seen as a search for the reality that lies behind mere reasoning in conceptional terms it's again you see it's the battering of language it's the battering of rationality and logic it's in our in my terms here it is the dichotomy between the lower and the upper story it's all involved in this the intellectual climate and the new theology is really related to this whole structure you could have another lecture the intellectual climate and the theater of the absurd that'd be another series of lectures maybe this is it as a sort of as sort of an appendix so what you have here is a battering against language, a battering against conceptional terms, a battering, a battering against the logical and the rational. Then it goes on. He may have devaluated language as an instrument for the communication of ultimate truths. Notice the word ultimate truths. He may have devaluated language as an instrument for the communication of ultimate truths. 
But he has shown himself a great master of language as an artistic medium. So here this word, the ultimate truth, as we get to the end of, of Essling's treatment, we'll see this is really what's, what's being battered. But nevertheless, nevertheless, it doesn't mean that they have ceased being men. It doesn't mean that they really can come to the place where they will shut up. It isn't in them to shut up because they're men. Down here at the very end of the, uh, almost the end of this thing on Beckett, in the theater, or at least in Beckett's theater, it is possible to bypass the, state, the stage of conceptional thinking altogether. As an abstract painting bypasses the stage of the recognition of natural objects, and uh, I would remind you that there was a real, a real parallel to, to Saad in this, as we studied in, in the last lecture. So now we, this is the, his ending, uh, end of the, his treatment of Beckett. Uh, a smashing of language rooted into the man's own view of life, and yet this doesn't mean that he, he just can keep quiet. Seeking just as uh, this other thing, hoping that an, an, an ethic will fall out. In this, hoping that meaning will fall out, in a sense. The next man treated is uh, Eugene UNESCO, and I don't want. I'm not going to spend much time on him, except to point out that if Essling is right, UNESCO is different than Beckett. Now, I'm no expert in this. I really am no expert in this. All I'm doing is quoting Essling at this point. But it's an interesting difference that whether it's right or not is worth pointing up as a, at least then a bare possibility, though I suppose Essling, Essling knows what he's talking about. Inesco protested against the imputation, I'm on page 80, Inesco protested against the imputation that he was, uh, de, uh, he was a deliberate anti-realist, that he maintained the impossibility of communication by language. Now he is discussing here his long, his long-running uh, argument with Kenneth Tynan, T-Y-N-A-N, the dramatic critic of the London Observer, and apparently they began, according to this, their feud in, in the summer of 1958. It continued for some time, and uh, as as Tynan accused him, just what Essling has said is true of Beckett. Apparently, Anesco fought back. Anesco fought back. And he says here, uh, this is what Nesco says, quote, the very fact of writing and presenting plays is surely inco uh, incompatible with such a view. I simply hold that it is difficult to make oneself understood, not absolutely impossible, end of quote. Now, that, I feel, is a very crucial distinction. It really is mm -hmm. crucial. Because we must understand that in some sense there's something in what he says here, and that is one must be careful in communication there's difficulty in communication in language as we spent a lot of time here on communication in the past the distinction between uh, uh, exhaustive meaning and uh, true meaning all these things there's real, there are real questions to be asked about the use of language uh, but having said that Having said, that's very different from saying that I'm going to devaluate language as such, language itself as junk. Well, now, Beckett seems to indicate the, that factor, but Inesco seems to say, no, I'm simply saying it is difficult. And thinking of, uh, 
thinking of some Inesco's plays, one has the impression there's something in this di this distinction. Um, now then, let's see if there's anything else on Inesco I want to... Uh, it goes on forever about the, this discussion between Tynan, is that how you pronounce his name, and, uh, and Inesco. And it's interesting to read, but I wouldn't, it's no use taking up long periods in this lecture for it. Uh, Nesco says, however, quote, I do not believe that there is a contradiction between creative and cognitive activity, for the structures of the mind probably reflect universal structures, which is very interesting. Of course, that's what I would say when I say man can forget the, the mannishness of man. This is exactly what I think is involved in this. Man cannot forget the mannishness of man, whether it is dealing uh, with uh, language structures or the structures of drama or painting. But he does... Now, that's only that language is not meaningless. Because as the book, as, this, uh, as Essling points out, Inesco really does feel that the human condition is absurd. He does see himself as a part of the tradition, including in so-and-so and so, uh, precisely because these authors are concerned with the human condition in all its brutal absurdity. So you must make a division here. He too believes that the position of man is absurd, but he doesn't believe that the use of language is totally absurd, which is a very... You remember I'm, I spent the whole first two hours of introduction in, in the... In, in the last lecture on the distinction. You can state the absurd in an unabsurd way or you can state it absurdly and this often is linked to the absurdity of language. It isn't that Inesco doesn't think the world, that the condition of man is absurd. He does, apparently just as much as Beckett. But then he doesn't think that this means, therefore, that you're shut up to an absurd use of language, that the language is absurd, which is very different. In other words, it's, the, it's on a different level. Now, Skipping along, I want to come to page 243, in which he's dealing with the origin of the absurd. And I think here, Essling is typically the modern man trying to read back into the past modern man's own position, which is very crucial, because you find these people are doing this all the time. You have to be careful. There's, there's always a lot of fancy footwork in which they try to show that the people of the past also were modern men. And that just isn't true. Modern men d didn't exist then. Modern men are modern men, which is very different. So men had understanding of some problems, but that's a different thing from saying that, uh, that uh, the people of the past were modern men with their feeling of absurdity. And these people are always trying to do this. I point out one of the black writers, I forget which one it was, wrote this famy, famous thing in England, what was it, England of the um, 17th century or something, uh, in which he, he, make, he sets it there undoubtedly. I wonder if I can find it fastly. Uh, yeah, here it goes. The uh, Seedwad Factor by, William, by uh, John Bard. And in which he sets it, in, uh, which he sets it back in the, in the past. 17th century, I thought I remembered correctly in England and colonial Maryland, in which the black writer of today sets his views back into the uh, 17th century, where they certainly wouldn't be found. They just wouldn't be there. Um, now, he says that Lewis Carroll, 
is one of the forerunners of, uh, I'm back with Essling, uh, one of the forerunners of the present concept of the absurd. And he uses this little bit, which is marvelous, all right. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said, in rather a, so a scornful tone, it means just what I choose, uh, choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, says Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, says Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. Very clever thing, uh, that uh, one of these wonderful things that Carol has written. But I would just suggest that this is not the same thing as uh, Beckett's concept that language is without meaning. It's a very different thing. Because though Carol states some, uh, some positions of, um, of amazement, something like this, yet nevertheless the whole thing is n never has the note of everything being only absurd, which is very different. It's a very different thing. You have a... Uh, it's a difference between, uh, between this and then transferring it and saying, well, that's what everything is. As a matter of fact, you remember, uh, the whole thing begins by going down the rabbit hole. It's a very important distinction. There is a rabbit hole. And this is um, important. Uh, there is a rabbit hole and there's a world outside of the rabbit hole. Do you see what I'm saying? So it isn't that everything is down the rabbit hole. Uh, with these people, everything's down the hatch, not the rabbit hole. And uh, it's a very different thing. So Carol never says, well, that's the way it is out there. It's the only the way it is down there. Uh, Carol may have had some of these things in his thinking, but certainly it was never couched in the terms that the modern writer has couched it in. Uh, then he goes on and he, he brings in some more intriguing people on page 247 uh, ring lardners wouldn't mean anything to an Englishman maybe I don't know uh, nonsense is closely related to the nonsense monologues of Robert Benchley uh, another among the large number of brilliant American pract uh, pract uh, practitioners of nonsense prose is, is S.J. Perlman who is responsible for some of the best dialogue in the Marx Brothers film and who has therefore directly influenced the theater of the absurd. Uh, I'd say no, 10,000 times no. The Marx Brothers were funny. This is the difference. This isn't meant to be funny. It's simply not meant to be funny. Uh, the Marx Brothers was, was funny. Uh, I know a woman who taught one of his children, uh, uh, was Groucho, I think, Groucho's children. And uh, so uh, when he entered the room, he came in to the teacher, and immediately Groucho, instead of bringing her an apple, you see, fell down and kissed her feet in front of the whole class. In other words, I want good grades for my child. And then everybody laughs. But this is funny. It really is funny. It's not sick. There's a great difference between the thing being funny and sick. Uh, there's a, the, and the uh, reaching back into this book I used on tape 50, um, Freelance, uh, the magazine of August 1965. The uh, it carries. Uh, this was a reprint from the National Observer. Date ungiven of the National Observer, but the freelance is August 1965. This distinction is made, which I think must always be kept in mind. Uh, we have, of course, we have had, of course, ob had absurd. Now, this is not the theater of the absurd. He's talking about the black writers but there's a real relationship. Had absurd people in escapades in American fiction before. Both of the work, uh, both are in the work of Sherwood Anderson and James Thuber. Uh, 
to take just two examples. Anderson clearly implied, however, that his, de his demented people were in the misunderstood minority. The black humorists imply, again quite clearly, that we are all demented. Now, that's a tremendous distinction. Thuber presents the absurd to us with a sly smile. His purpose is to make us laugh. Now, I would just say in parenthesis, so with Marx Brothers. The black humorists present the absurd with a straight, perfectly serious face. Its purpose is to inspire, us, uh, to inspire a derisive horse laugh mixed with tears. While you're laughing, they seem to say, remember, this is your life. And this is a, a fine statement that would cut also uh, against Essling. Essling is, is, is not, is, uh, he's not it's, what he's doing here is really not cricket. Now, whether he knows it or not, I don't know. You'd have to have him here and have a discussion with him to know whether he's, whether he's being honest or not. Maybe he just doesn't know any better. But that sounds rather strange uh, for uh, considering who he is on the BBC, you know? I'd have a question to I was sure. Because what he's doing is not honest here, unless he really knows what he's doing. Benchley, Ringlarder, these people uh, are a very different situation, just as this uh, thing on the black writers indicates the American writers, such as Thuber. And the Marx Brothers really wanted you to laugh. And you could leave the Marx Brothers play, and you, you just felt pretty good, because you'd laugh so hard so long. <laughs> But anybody who feels that way after coming out one of these plays, <laughs> then you then you know he's really sick. <laughs> so um, so you have this isn't fair. A little for and I would uh, I would point out there is a difference too because in which I would differ definitely again with this freelance. I, this is in tape fifty, but it fits here too. In which uh, the freelance writer connects all this up with Jonathan Swift. And I just say that's that's not cricket either, because Jonathan Swift used his all this stuff that he wrote with a purpose in mind, with a very sharp sociological purpose in mind. He he had something he meant to produce, really produce, where these men are saying there's nothing to produce, which is very different. The the absurdity, uh, the uh, the theater, the absurd. The paintings of this nature, the popular music of this nature, the black writers, they're not saying for a moment that uh, I am using this absurd situation to shake you and make you to wake up in order to produce a, uh, uh, a, a meaningful, uh, focused, uh, structured revolution. That isn't what they're saying. They're just saying it's all, it's all this way and that's all there is. So these men are saying that's all there is to this, only this, which is very different. Uh, it's just as false as trying to read the Sot-Reed factor back into the 17th century. They're trying to say these men were modern men too. And the answer is they, they weren't at all. Uh, you are a modern man, but these people weren't modern men. And don't try to get the two confused. Modern men, of course, you know I feel, is born only after Hegel and Kierkegaard. I think this is the birth of modern man. And before that, you have you have lots of things which are unchristian and wrong and all sorts of things, but but not this, not this. Now I come to the significance of the absurd, chapter seven, page two hundred and ninety. This is the last chapter of the book by Essling. Essling shows again he really knows how what he's doing because this is the way he begins. 
when Nietzsche's uh, Zarathustra descended from his mountains to preach to mankind, he met a saintly hermit in the forest. This old man invited him to stay in the wilderness, etc., etc., etc. Anyways, this uh, Zarathustra declined the old man's offer, and etc. Zarathustra was first published in 1883, and then he quotes this way. But when he was alone, he spoke thus in his heart. Can it be possible this old saint in the forest has not yet heard that God is dead? So Ashling really understands what's the start of all this. He really understands where it rests. The thing I say so many times, Nietzsche says God is dead. Well, pretty soon you're going to have to say man is dead. Then he goes on and he says immediately, this is all in the first, right, uh, just right in the beginning of this uh, significance of the absurd. Uh, he says, however, we haven't come to easy answers, which is very intriguing because, you see, the humanist, the rationalist, really thought they were going to come to some very sharp, easy answers. But by, by saying God is dead and telling everybody about it, that pretty soon the humanist would produce a magnificent world. So you went through a very strong period of optimistic humanism. But he points out something. Essling points out something. Mankind has learned the bitter lesson of the falseness and evil nature of some of the cheap and vulgar substitutes that have been set up to take his, that is, God's place. So, of course, he would be thinking of National Socialism. He would be thinking of many other things. He would be thinking of Stalinism. He would be thinking of the various things that men thought, the idealists who said God is dead, the idealists thought very quickly we're going to be able to set up an easy and simple solution in society, and it just hasn't turned out that way. So you've gone through now. Man has said God is dead. And then, isn't it wonderful, now we're really going to be free. Now we're going to be able to produce a humanistic society that's really going to be terrific. And instead of that, we have come uh, to 1960, which is pretty bad. You remember the Francis, the painting on, the essay on Francis Bacon put it, put, pointed out that when he first painted his, uh, his crucifixion, his scenes for the crucifixion, uh, we hadn't we hadn't gone through uh, the uh, Nazi regime yet, and so people were taken by surprise. And then the, this essayist on Frank and ba Francis Bacon said, "Yes, but we've gone through it now." So really, when we look at Francis Bacon's paintings now, we don't feel what the people would have felt back in their romantic humanism. He doesn't use this terminology, but it's exactly what he means. Well, that's the same thing Essling says. That man has gone through what he hoped was going to be the golden age uh, of the free thinker of a humanism, of man unchained. And instead of that, we have come to these awful things we've come to in our generation. Well, then what, what are we going to do? Well, this, he says, here comes the theater of the absurd. This is just a statement of where we are. Man has gone through these tremendous longings, tremendous enthusiasms on both sides of the Iron Curtain. Instead of that, there comes, uh, there comes what has come on both sides of the Iron Curtain in the police state or in so many of these other things but not just in these other extreme countries but you just walk around Piccadilly and you just look and something has died here something has really died here Dr. Ruckmacher has loaned me a disc on um, Bob Dylan and I was listening to it last night and I said to Edith you know I said I can see how a boy can live through this but what would it do to a girl and she said well that's what you see in, in London. And I think she's absolutely right. There's something murdered here. There's something really dead here. Something has been murdered in all this. Something has really died. 
And what you have then is, is Francis Bacon's paintings, but what you have is also the theater of the absurd, saying, well, this is it. This is it. He goes on, 291, for God is dead above all to the masses. Now he says some ways that God is dead. And this is very intriguing. For God is dead above all to the masses who live from day to day and have lost all contact with the basic facts, the mysteries of the human condition, which in former times uh, they were kept in touch through uh, they were kept in touch through the living ritual of their religion, which made them part of a real community and not just atoms in an, an, in an atomized society. And boinings. They've lost the whole thing that gave meaning and structure to the whole. And as Leonardo da Vinci saw so long ago, when you're done on this level, well, you just have particulars. And that's all. You just have particulars. The, uh, the uh, atomized society. And who's the individual in this kind of thing? And he says, these people have gone on, and they're less than human, these people. And then he goes on, and he says here, uh, he says, well, the theater of the observed smashes against this people. The absurdity of lives lived unaware and unconscious of ultimate reality. This is the feeling of the deadness and mechanical senselessness of the un half-unconscious lives, the feeling of human beings secreting inhumanity, which Camus describes. And he's absolutely right. So he says, well, it's just, he's beginning to talk, remember, it's the significance of the absurd. So he's beginning to say, here's the first purpose of the theater of the absurd. It's just, just smash these people in the teeth. It's to hit them so hard that maybe they'll wake up for five minutes, something like this. Take them out of their nice little circles and to make them realize, really and truly, you've got some problems. You just mustn't go on in the parade you're in. You must ask, uh, wonder, what's the use of waking them up when you got when after they're wake up, awakened, you just say to them, there's nothing there. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, having from a Christian viewpoint, I, I have think I have much sympathy with this first step, as I've already intimated. A lot of sympathy with uh, with waking up the upper middle class, and that means upper middle class evangelicals too. They need some waking up. They need to be told uh, everything isn't so beautiful. You just can't produce your romantic thoughts your romantic uh, uh, Sunday school literature. You just can't take your young people and feed them this sort of stuff and then expect them really to stand when the heat's on. So there is a real sense in which I've already spoken tonight, in which the theater of the absurd, if you had a second act, could be seen uh, as, uh, as having some truth in it, some value in it even. Of course, but, but what happens when there is no second act? He goes on a bit further behind the, uh, the exposure of the absurdity of uh, inauthentic ways of life. The theater of the absurd is facing up to a deeper layer of absurdity. The absurdity of the human condition itself in a world where the decline of religious belief has deprived man of certainty. You notice how he comes back. He understands it's the, it's the death of religious belief that has made this difference. And this is what swept everything here. But here you see, now he comes to the second second statement of the theater of the absurd. The first statement of the theater of the absurd is, oh bourgeois, oh bourgeois, oh bourgeois, wake up. Uh, to which we might have a lot of sympathy. But when you get him awake, he says, the next thing the theater of the absurd says is that life is just totally absurd. And if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny. Because you might say, why not let him sleep? Why not let him sleep? If a man's peacefully sleeping and um, and they're just going to kill him anyway, well, why not let him die in his sleep? Why wake him up and say, do you understand what they're going to do? They're going to turn the gas on in two minutes. This is awful. You just let him sleep. It's better to just sleep. 
But these people then come to the second step of, the, of their message. The first message is wake up, for which we can have a lot of sympathy. The second message is, but there's nothing there after they're awake. He goes on a little further. Concerned as it is with the ultimate realities of the human condition, the relatively few fundamental problems of life and death, isolation and communication, the theater of the absurd, however grotesque, frivolous, and uh, irreverent it may appear, represents a return to the original religious function of the theater, the confrontation of man with the spheres of myth and religious reality. Like ancient Greek tragedy in the medieval mystery plays and Baroque allegories, the theater of the observe is intent on making its audience aware of man's precarious and mysterious position in the universe. The difference is merely, I love this word merely, it doesn't seem possible. The difference is merely that in ancient Greek tragedy and comedy as well as in the medieval mystery play and the Baroque uh, play, the ultimate realities concerning were, concerned were generally known and universally accepted metaphysical systems, while the theater of the observe expresses the absence of any such generally accepted cosmic system of values. That's all. Outside of that, there's no difference. In other words, in one hand, you're told, uh, here's something to learn, and the other one is, there's nothing to learn. And outside of that, there's no difference. But there is another way in which he's right. And that is, this is a far cry from merely the entertainment theater. In this he's absolutely right. This is absolutely right. There is a kind of a theater that is merely entertainment. This is not a theater which is merely entertainment. It is serious theater. And in this sense, it is indeed like the Greek theater or uh, the the medieval uh, religious theater. They're, They're all serious theater in contrast to merely the theater of entertainment and escape. But having said they're all serious theater, then one must come along and say, but their their message is so absolutely different as he has indicated. As it does not expound, a little further on, as it does not expound a thesis or debate ideological presuppositions, it is not concerned with the representation of events, the narration of the fate of or the adventures of the characters, but instead with the presentation of one individual's basic situation. It is a theater of situation against a theater of events and sequence, and therefore it uses language based on patterns of concrete images rather than argument and discurs- argumentative and discursive speech. And since it is trying to present a sense of being, it can neither investigate nor solve problems of conduct or morals. In other words, there's no morals have no meaning in this situation because you don't know anything about being yet. And those of you who have been listening to my lectures will remember my saying that there are two levels of human thinking and all human thinking falls into two levels, the metaphysical and then the moral. Metaphysics deals with being, the existence of things. Uh, morals deal with the moral things. And it's quite proper, that it is quite right, that it's ridiculous to talk about morals until you've settled the problem of being. This is absolutely correct. It's no use talking about morals until you've settled the problem of being. And this, the theater of the absurd is only dealing with the theater of being, and consequently, that being the case, it hasn't gotten around and doesn't expect to get around to uh, morals. So don't say the, the theater of the absurd is a dirty play. That's ridiculous. It just doesn't deal with morals. It's an amoral play, but it's not, a, it's not an immoral play, because morals don't exist, because no meaning exists to anything yet, at least. And if no meaning exists to anything at least yet, then surely morals don't have any meaning. So it's stupid to say 
these people are immoral. All you can say is this is an amoral situation. Now, to get on, and I'm afraid I'm going to get caught for time, though I have about a half hour before this lecture is over, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, 297, in its devaluation of language, the theater of the absurd is in tune with a trend of our time. As George Steiner has pointed out in two radio talks entitled The Retreat from the Word, it must be a BBC broadcast, I guess, uh, The Retreat from the Word, the devaluation of language is characteristic not only of the development of contemporary poetry or philosophic thought, but even more of modern mathematics and the natural science. Sciences. Quote, it is no paradox to assert, Steiner says, that much of reality now begins outside of language. Large areas of meaningful experience now belong to nonverbal languages such as mathematics, formula, and logical symbolism. Others belong to anti-languages such as the prong, prog, uh, practice of non-objective art or autonal music. The world is, uh, of the word has shrunk. End of quote. Now, this is intriguing. Because, of course, it ties in again with uh, McLuhan's whole concept of new, the new communication. The whole, seems to me, the whole totalitarian state, just ready to, to give us a communication on a cool level in which there's no content and in which there is no, um, uh, no control. But uh, I would challenge, I would challenge his statement that this is, uh, this is true with mathematics. Uh, I think, again, this is somewhat parallel to the way I speak of the new theology using the scientific use of symbol in a way that is faulty. It seems to me that to drag in uh, mathematics and science as though it illustrates this is false. I have here a BBC listener of May 12, 1966, rather recent. The listener of May 12, 1966, letters, letters, letters to the editor. And he is discussing the BBC program of Mr. Humphrey Palmer's talks on the reduction game, which is very interesting because Palmer was talking in those articles on the reduction game on Bishop Robison's Honest to God. So it makes it all a nice little circle here. So Humphrey Palmer had made certain statements in his article on the reduction game dealing with Honest to God. And now this man... Uh, who is R. Brown, the University of Hull, senior lecturer in pure mathematics. So you know something about what he's talking about. Uh, maybe you know R. Brown, uh, University of Hull, senior lecturer in pure mathematics. And he says, he says this, well, these, these are these lectures of uh, Humphrey Palmer's, very interesting, but he certainly doesn't know what he's talking about, about mathematics. It's just what he says. And then he gives this. Definitions play a role in mathematics because mathematics are not superhuman. In theory, definitions could be dispensed with since the defined object could always be replaced by its definition. But if this were done, the resulting exposition would be incomp incomprehensible. And so definitions are used to prop, up, uh, prop our understanding and to display clearly the structure of the subject. That's a lovely little paragraph. Everybody ought to have that one. I'll let you all copy it afterwards. I'll read it slowly for the people on the tape, though. Definitions play a role in mathematics because mathematics are not superhuman. Period. Full stop. In theory, definitions could be dispensed with since the defined object could always be replaced by its definition. Full stop. But if this were done, the resulting exposition would be incomprehensible. 
And so definitions are used to prep our understanding and to display clearly the structure of the subject. What's he talking about? Well, what he's saying is this, that the that you, you can't really only use mathematical symbols, etc., 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 without any language at all, because when you get done, you find that the scientist doesn't only talk in these, not only the layman, but the scientist, not only the student just beginning at Hull University, but the man on the top of the pile, he doesn't only talk this way, but it's necessary also to bring in language for definition. And boy, this is tremendous. It's really tremendous. When you've devaluated language, you've devaluated the works. There isn't anything that people don't talk about. There isn't anything that can be carried on in communication without bringing language into it. So when you kill language, you really kill everything. Just as I've pointed out over and over again, when you kill language, you kill thought, because you think with language in your own head. Well, when you kill language, you kill the lot. So consequently, uh, BBC program or not, uh, in a way, of course, this is interesting, but it's not absolute. Definition, word definitions do play a place. We may be living in, in language plus, but we're not, pl we're not living in the area of, of science in anti-language, which is very, very different. In the area now, now what we're talking about now is my, is my dichotomy of the rational and the logical on the lower story in opposition to the non-rational and the non-logical in the upper story. But when you try to say that in the lower story language really is junk too, you've really made a tragic mistake. You use, use language for everything. So you can put up signs along the auto routes and you can mark them with signs instead of words. Fair enough. But when you take your test, the man really asks you about these things in words. In the lower level, we, st we, haven't, we haven't gotten rid of language. It isn't get gotten rid of. It just can't be done. So really, in a way, in a way it's true, we're dealing with a pro in, a, in a world of anti-language, but in another way, to make it as absolute as is trying to be made here, as though the theater of the absurd is really in the entire swim, is just too much. It's just like saying to the man, well, here is the most far-out art in the world, and then that's all there is. That's all there is to life. Well, people don't... The, the very humanness of man is, is involved here. You, And the very way God has made is involved. We think in language, regardless of what we say. Uh, however, he is right, of course, absolutely right, that the theater of the absurd is in the swim as far as all these far-out philosophic statements are expressed. And you remember uh, the Gustav Mueller's essay that we started that tape 50 with on the, uh, the philosophy of the 20th century novel where he says, uh, in the 20th century more philosophy has been stated by the novel and all the philosophic departments in America put together. Something like that. Maybe it's a little stronger than he said, but not much. The real philosophy today is stated by the novel. Uh, and the... Uh, and it is, it is true, of course, that in the, in the far-out novel, in the, the leading to the black writers, uh, the far-out theater, the far-out painter, the far-out musician, then there are these, these cross-references. And this he's absolutely related. He's absolutely right, of course. But you must be careful not to suddenly say, oh, yes, we live in a world in which language isn't important anymore. That just isn't true. He goes on. Now, this is not a quote any longer from Steiner. It's Essling picking up. 
Moreover, the abandonment of language is the best instrument of notation in, in the spheres of mathematics and symbolic language goes hands in hands with a marked reduction in the popular belief in its practical usefulness. Language appears more and more as being a contradiction in contradiction to reality. The trends of thought that have the greatest influence on contemporary popular thinking all show this tendency. And so you'd have LSD, first order experiences, et cetera, et cetera. He says there's something right in what he says, but he just I would just say he makes it too much. Uh, now, in the next page, 298, uh, he comes to uh, Wittgenstein. Uh, the devaluation and criticism of language uh, is also the prevailing trends, are also the prevailing trends in contemporary philosophy, as exemplified by Wittgenstein's convictions in the last phase of his thinking that the philosopher must endeavor to disentangle thought from the convention of rules of grammar which have been mistaken for the rules of logic. A little further on, by a strict criticism of language, Wittgenstein's followers have declared large categories of statements to be devoid of objective meaning. Wittgenstein's word games have much in common with the theater of the absurd. And this I would totally agree. This I would totally agree. These things are related. But even more significant than these tendencies, uh, than these tendencies, in Marxian psychological and philosophic thinking is the trend of the times in the workaday world of the man in the street, exposed to the incessant, the inexorable, loquacious onslaught of the mass media, the press, the advertising, the man in the street becomes more and more skeptical toward the language he is exposed to. The citizens of totalitarian countries know full well that, that most of what they are told is double talk, devoid of real meaning. They become adept at reading between the lines, that is, in guessing at the reality the language conceals rather than reveals. In the West, uh, the same fill the press or resound from the pulpits. I rather like that, resound from the pulpits, because, of course, I agree. In the New Theology, it's exactly this. This is what the New Theology is, a series of somatic, somatic uh, uh, indications without any definitions, as I point out so often. So in all this, I can agree. He goes on, he points out that advertising is devaluated language. Cause it, and in a way, all this is right. And perhaps all this is connected then with McLuhan's concept that people are ready for the shift. But on the other hand, on the other hand, I would just say, well, it depends what you mean. If you mean that we really are being in a barrage in all these ideas, he's certainly right. And in this sense, the theater of the absurd is not out of step with what is surrounding us. But if you mean that in reality, man is living absolutely as though language has, has become passé, then this, as I've pointed out, even in mathematics, is not true. He points out, he points out for example, that the theater of the absurd is more, more, more successful than Brecht. B-R-E-C-H-T Brecht and he says uh, that uh, in, the, in Brecht's uh, didactic socialist theater uh, Brecht argued that the time honored psychological link between the actor and the audience must be broken but he never achieved his aim the old magic of the theater was too strong 
because Breck still operated in such a way that he got you to identify with a character, is what he says. Then he goes on, he says, the theater of the absurd, on the other hand, has, has gone beyond this. Because in the theater of the absurd, the audience is confronted with characters whose motives and actions remain largely incomprehensible. And because this is the case in the theater of the absurd, he, Essling says, the theater of the absurd is, has uh, achieved what Brent, uh, Brett Breck couldn't. Because he says you're completely separated from the characters because you can't understand what they are anyway. And because you can't understand what they are anyway, you are not, you are, uh, you are not caught up with the characters. It's a, a disintegrating world that is presented. A disintegrated world that has lost its unifying principle, its meaning, its pers- purpose, an absurd universe. And therefore, he says, that actually the theater of the absurd has broken the old magic of the theater, so you aren't, uh, you aren't involved with a character, regardless of what you think of this. This is what he's saying. You aren't involved with a character. And so in, in a real way, in a real way, uh, you, can, uh, you stand there looking at it, and you're open to, uh, you're open to a direct onslaught from the theater in the way you wouldn't be otherwise. Now this is, his conclu- this is where he's gone here. On page 302, which if I had longer I'd spend more time on, he quotes an Eva Metman uh, in her remarkable ex- essay on Beckett, connecting all this with Carl Gustav Jung archetypal concepts. And uh, I would just, because I've lectured already on this sufficiently, I would just point out, I don't think this is the right explanation, but I do think that these, the, the connotation of words is involved here. And so what you're doing is, is you're confronted with a, in the theater with absurd, in a situation where language is devaluated, and yet the same thing, yet you're still open and naked uh, to the direct onslaught. That's what we're coming towards. The direct onslaught of the theater upon you. Without any controls, because there's no defined words. The language has been devaluated, just like theological language is devaluated today. So there's no controls. There's no way to check it. There's no way to weigh the situation. You're just confronted with the thing. And therefore, you're open to the onslaught in the theater uh, of, uh, of an, uncontrolled, an uncontrolled message. And I think he's absolutely right in this. This is the next step. The first step, you see, is the the first step we spoke of was the absurd stated as the absurd. The second step was the absurd stated as an absurdity. The first step, the absurd spoken in good language and so on. The second, the the absurdity presented as in an absurd situation. But all this leads to the third thing, and that is then they use this whole situation for a communication without any control because they've separated you from all the normal use of language. So you really are naked to what they are attempting to project. You really are naked to what they are attempting to project because all the controls are removed, all the normal controls, rationality, logic, your own understanding of the situation, and yet in this case, now they are ready to make a communication which can be more total, or to McLuhan's term, a cool communication, because all the controls that normally surround our talking and so forth, all the signposts, something like this, are removed. He says quite properly, I think. He says the um, he speaks here that it has the power 
of, of the dredged up, dredged up from the depth of the subconscious. And in this I really feel he has something very, very real to say. Now he goes on and he says that th this is far superior to the early Dadist theater, connected with Dadist, uh, Dada art, of course, and in Zurich and so on. The superiority of co complex images like the tramps waiting for Godot uh, over some of the more chi childish pranks of the early Dadist theater is as evident as the superiority of El uh, Eliot's four quartets over the dog roll on a Christmas card. And for the same evident and purely objective reasons, higher complexity, greater depth, more brilliant and sustained invention, and infinitely greater craftsmanship. Fair enough. In, in other words, it's a higher technicality, but it, is, uh, but it has the same message. It has the same message. I think he's right in relating this to Dada, in the meaninglessness of a situation. It's not very far off from some of the Dada poems of ripping up words out of a newspaper, picking them out by chance, and saying, "This is what's here." Actually, it doesn't seem to me that uh, the da that the uh, uh, that the absurd theater has gone much beyond that. It's really rooted back in this. Now he says here, the theater of the absurd, paradoxically though this may appear at first sight, can be seen as an attempt to communicate the metaphysical experience behind the scientific attitude, and at the same time to supplement it by rounding off the partial view of the world it presents and integrating it in a wider vision of the world and its mystery. Now actually I have about three pages here that all ought to be read. I don't suppose I'll do it because our time watching my watch for our two-hour lecture. But, uh, but the end of it is all very interesting. What he's saying is here is he's coming up to this last point. Now, you remember the first point was we're going to batter the bourgeois to make them, uh, make them realize uh, the world's... The, we're, they're, they're surrounded by more than that, whatever that turns out to be for the bourgeois. Secondly, secondly after this, that it's an absurd world. That's what we tell them when we got them awake. But thirdly, that by smashing communication on the normal level, it is open now as an instrument to communicate. It is open as an instrument to communicate. And the communicating is on, the is, is on this first order experience level, as we've already seen uh, carried, taught way back here uh, by, uh, by Arto in our, the thing we started with tonight. He goes on further, and he says here, uh, the thing that they're, they're saying to man is that ultimate purposes cannot and never will be known. You remember my illustration? It's not just that modern man says we haven't found it out yet, my illustration of no exit, the round room in one of my lectures. It isn't that it's the modern man saying we haven't found the answer yet, modern man is saying that never will be an answer. He goes on a little further and he uses the frame must forever remain unexplained. He goes on a little further and he says that he can never know his, nat his true nature and purpose. He can never know his true nature and purpose. And then again he quotes Camus, this, this brilliant yet terrible thing of Camus. The certainty of the existence of a God who would give meaning to life has far greater attraction than the knowledge that without him one could do evil without being punished. 
The choice between these alternatives would not be difficult, but there is no choice, and that is where the bitterness begins. And Camus really understands the death of God that's really the problem with all this. It's man forgetting that God is there. It's man turning away from the truth of God being there and gradually coming out to the bitter place of understanding that on his basis of his humanism, his rationality, he wasn't going to be able to come up uh, uh, with an answer. And then Essling says this little thing, which so many of these, this type of thing these people do, and then you just say, well, Essling, are you blind? Because he says a sentence here, but by facing up, this comes right after that quote by Camus, but by facing up to anxiety and despair in the absence of divinely revealed alternatives, anxiety and despair can be overcome what a what a romanticism so do you think the theater of the absurd is going to lead you into real realism not really it's just a new romanticism what you have is another way of the whole new mysticism uh, a non-linguistic connotation concept a new somatic mysticism based on the connotation of words and the, the whole structure this isn't really separated from that it's really rooted back into the same thing. It's rooted back into Terry Southern's pornographic thing. We'll keep throwing this dirt against the wall and I hope an ethic will fall out. We will cast up all this absurdity and uh, we, we can overcome our despair, says Essling. And remember, Essling now is your BBC radio man. So Don't think that he, he doesn't understand in the plays that are put on on the BBC when he's managing the thing. He's not just talking about other people's philosophy. These are, this is his philosophy. Don't ever forget this. He isn't just talking about Beckett. He's talking about Essling when he comes here. And Essling's an important man in his own place, has been anyway. Um, so he goes on and he, he comes further. And he connects it, interestingly enough, with Zen. Hence, a profoundly mystical philosophy like Zen Buddhism bases itself on the rejection of conceptional thinking itself. He's absolutely right, of course. He's absolutely right. So it does. But it's the same thing again. Now we're back in the East. But what kind of an East? We're an East where the theater, the absurd, is being used in the statement of absurdity to breaking everything down that man has counted as any kind of guideline. And then in a first-order hypnotic experience, a real sublineal experience, projecting the new concept. This is surely the, the, where, the, where all this comes out. It's more than just smashing it. It's smashed, but it isn't just smashed. When it's smashed, then they make a, 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 new, a new communication. But it's a communication in which all those things which have given our culture any root in the past now has been smashed to death first. But after these are all dead, then they present you with a first-order experience that's very, very close to Zen. And he quite rightly says, well, the theater of the absurd is the way they teach Zen. So often if a, a pupil goes up to a Zen a teacher and asks him a question, the man just smashes him in the face or hits him with his stick and then walks away. And he says, isn't that something like the theater of the absurd? And of course the answer is, yeah, a whole lot like the theater of the absurd. Essling really understands. We've really come back to this place. Or again, Romans 1. That coming, giving up the knowledge of the God who is there and the knowledge man may have in reality, man really is foolish. Man chooses to be all this rather than what man can be in the way God has made him and in the knowledge we have. And, and this, these people really understand that what they're doing is smashing the Christian culture. They really understand they're smashing down the Reformation base. They really understand that it's God they're smashing. 
And then when they get done and the culture's finished and there's no moral values, there's none of these things, then they present this. They present their message, however, in the middle of their nonsense. And their nonsense communicates. And this is, their, this is where we end up. Seen from this angle, the dethronement of language and logic forms part of an essential mystical attitude toward the basis of reality as being too complex and at the same time too unified, too much of one piece to be vitally, uh, uh, validly expressed by the, uh, by the analytical means of orderly syntax and conceptional thought. Where are we? Well, we're back in Hinduism. We're back in, Buddha, we're back in uh, pantheism. A single system of values that is absolutes. Uh, and the recognition of the mysterious and ineffable oneness beyond all rational comprehension. This is just straight. It's, we're back in the East. We're in the middle of the Eastern religions. And this is the last page. We're to the last page of Eslin's book. This is page 316. We're getting down now into the last, into the home stretch of the thing. And where do we end up? We end up uh, with an absurdity, with everything smashed. But when it's all smashed, now communicating. But what are they communicating? They're communicating a number of things, but one thing is certainly, uh, there's one direction uh, of it, among others, and that is pantheism. And so you've come to the whole, the whole big circle. He says here, these are, the, uh, these are in fact two sides of the same metal, the mystical experience of the absolute otherness. And of course, here you have the philosophic other, the impersonal everything, in my expression, in my language. So, so you have now, you have a, you, it's by smashing c communication on a linguistic basis that's open to rationality and logic, now there's a communication. And it's a communication that's right back where we've studied in all the other somatic mysticisms. Only this is a somatic mysticism where language has been smashed. But nevertheless, you're still projecting now in the first kind of a first-order experience that the LSD people uh, are fighting for. The, realiza the realization that thinking in poetic images has its validity side by side with con conceptional thought and the insistence on a clear recognition of the functional and uh, function and possibility of each mode does not amount to a return to irrationalism. On the contrary, it opens the way for a truly rational uh, attitude. Ultimately, a phenomenon like the theater of the observed does not reflect despair or return to dark, irrational forces. So he said everything's absurd. He said all that. I've read it very clearly. It isn't just Beckett. Essling said it. But now he gets it done. He doesn't want you to end there, though. He's just like Sartre. He can't live with it. He's just like Heidegger. He can't live with it. So when you get to the end of the road, Sartre isn't consistent. When you get to the road, you've got to have a, the new Heidegger with his, uh, the poet is the, is the prophet. The same thing all over again. Language, language, uh, language not in his content, but just the existence of language uh, says something. And this man has come around in this big circle. So he says, we wake, up the, we wake up the bourgeois, and then we say, there's nothing there. But when he gets to the end, 316, he doesn't end there. He doesn't ring down the curtain and you go home. Instead of that, he says, oh, but just like Terry Southern, there's going to be something golden drop out. Now he goes then, and these last, last few lines. Um, he says here, there are enormous, he repeats himself, there are enormous pressures in our world that seek to induce mankind to bear the loss of faith and moral certainties by being drugged into oblivion, by mass entertainments, shallow material satisfactions, pseudo explanations of reality, and cheap ideologies. 
At the end of that rose lies Huxley's brave new world, a senseless uh, automata. Today, when death and old age are increasingly concealed behind comforting baby talk and life is threatened with being smothered in the mass consumption of hypnotic, mechanized vulgarity, the need to confront man with the reality of his situation is greater than ever. That's the first half. Wake him up. For the dignity of man lies in his ability to face reality in all its senselessness, to accept it freely, without fear, without illusions, and to laugh at it. And then you're supposed to get out a trumpet and play it, I suppose. But, of course, people don't laugh at it. France, anybody who looks at Francis Bacon's painting and laughs, as I say, they really are stupid. Anybody that comes out of one of Beckett's best plays and, and laughs, nobody laughs at this. Nobody laughs at this. When people came out of that big Phillips show at the Expo in Brussels, the Courbisay put on, Nobody laughs at this. When people first hear music on cry, people really don't laugh at this. When people read the, have the, read the black humorous, people don't laugh at it, as I pointed out. There's nothing there to laugh at. You cry. Nobody laughs at this. And Papa Hemingway didn't laugh either. He put a gun in his mouth and he just blew off his head. That's all. Nobody laughs at this. This is really whistling in the dark. And the last sentence, that is the cause to which, in their various individual modest in uh, modest ways the dramatists of the observed are dedicated now a quick conclusion we're almost we'll, we'll make it within a half within the two hours and a couple minutes so now the theater of the absurd is more than merely the statement of the absurd the theater of the, of the absurd is a statement of the absurd by absurd means and specifically the devaluation of language but I want to end with this emphasis but in its devaluation of language and its emphasis on absurdity, it is highly selective. It doesn't destroy everything. It is highly selective. The first thing is, it does not destroy, in, in the dichotomy, as I use it in my lectures, the lower story. It does not destroy the logic of science in the normal thing of life. What it's battering against is not the normal things of life, but in the upper story of meaning, morals, all this kind of thing. This is where it's battling against. The area of meaning, the area of morals. It basically, then, is a very, very, a very careful attack on absolutes. This is really what it's battering against. It's an attack on the upper story where meaning would be, where there would be any unity in opposition to merely particulars. It is, it is hitting at this with comprehension. And especially what it's hitting is Christian absolutes. This especially what it's hitting is Christian absolutes. <laughs> so it understands that the real enemy is the Christian absolute and it's out to get it. And it does get it. It does get it. If you're just open to a sublineal attack on your BBC or your, or, or these programs, uh, Christian Christian absolutes are, are are hit hard. If you allow yourself to be washed into the situation where your critical analysis is gone, where the language is devaluated, where the rationality and logic is gone, and you just take full in the face the communication they're giving, uh, the Christian position really, really is smashed. And they know what they're doing, I would insist. What they're out to do is in a, in a way that is close to sublineal. 
after removing the normal guidelines and the, new, the normal signposts and removing the normal means of control and the French word control, then they project a, they project a communication. It isn't when you're done there's nothing. They really communicate. What they communicate is the nonsense against the absolutes. And then they may say, well, we hope to give you something someday. But nevertheless, the thing that is the selectively smashed is the absolutes. It's not that in their, their absurdity there's an only an observed communication. It is not this. There's a, a focused communication. A statement of absurdity that is projected indeed, but a, a, in, a, in a very highly selective way. And you can feel this in all the writings. It's highly selective. It uses then, after it has smashed the normal use of language, it is it is de deliberately uses a first order experience. And let me repeat again: Leary has given has said we are going to take a year off on LSD, and what we're going to do is to show that it's possible to have these same experiences in different ways other than LSD. And he's I think he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. The drug experience, the first order experience in drugs, is, is sharply related to the religious experience. He knows what he's doing when he uses the Tibetan Book of the Dead in, the, in relationship to the first order experience of LSD. Leary really knows what he's doing. So you can, you're projecting a first order experience of communication after the normal elements of communication are, are smashed. And when they're smashed, the control is smashed. The rationality and logic is, is laid aside and you're completely naked for the message. And the message is first destructive as to absolutes, values, and peculiarly Christian values and absolutes. That's first. Destruction. Destructive. Secondly, as I've pointed out, maybe, however, they project this vain hope, uh, the vain hope uh, of something better falling out, just like Southern, Terry Southern, something better falling out of pornographic literature. And then thirdly, all very often, you do have a feeling of even more focusedness of, uh, of communication, <laughs> uh, of pantheism. You begin to feel, just as Essling brought you in a big circle, and he really brought you to pantheism. So it is, it seems to me, that often the same thing is involved. Not always, but often. A communication, destructive, but a highly selective destructiveness. And then, then maybe the hope of something else coming out, and maybe it's more focused than this, into a specific pantheism. Now I want to read in conclusion, it'll take maybe five minutes, the, um, this disc that Dr. Ruckmacher let me see. And I want to show you the same thing. I want to give you an illustration of it, not in a play, but in, uh, in uh, the back of the jacket of this uh, of Bob Dylan's disc. Bob Dylan, Highway 60, 61 Revisited. And I quite agree with Dr. Ruckmacher. There's something tremendously destructive in this. And you get the same kind of situation as you get in the theater of the absurd. Language is, suddenly becomes junk, and yet the funny part is when you get done, you've had a communication. And it's a communication in which especially young people or those who are not careful and not taught how to meet it certainly are very, very susceptible. It's not possible to think of a more 
uh, a more crucial way, it's really very close, I would say, to a drug experience of taking a young person without critical control and just smashing them with this kind of thing. In a way, it sounds like nothing. And then when you get done, it, you really are dead. You really are smashed. So let me read this. I haven't read it before out loud, so maybe it won't sound, maybe my reading won't be very good, but it'll do. This is number on the back of the, of the disc. Um, I don't know if he wrote it or not, but whoever wrote it certainly was, uh, was in the direct line with Bob Dylan's uh, much of his message. Here it is. On the slow train time does not interfere, and at the Arabian crossing waits white heap. The man from the hilltop, and behind him the hundred inevitables, made of solid rock and stone, the cream judge and the clown, the dollhouse, where savage rose and openly live simply in their wild animal luxury. Autumn, with two zeros above her nose, arguing over the sun being dark. Or Bach is, a famo- is as famous as his commotion, and that she herself, not Orpheus, is the logical poet. I am the logical poet, she screams. Spring, spring is only the beginning. She attempts to make Cream Judge jealous by telling him of down-to-earth people, and while the universe is erupting, she points to the slow train and prays for rain and for time to interfere. She is not extremely fat, but rather authoritatively unhappy. The hundred inevitables hide their uh, uh, predictions to go to bars and drink and get drunk in their very special conscious way. And when Tom Dooley, the kind of a person you think you've seen before, comes strolling in with white heap, the hundred inevitables all say, Who's that man that looks so white? And the bartender, a good boy, and one who keeps a buffalo in his mind says, I don't know, but I'm sure I've seen the other fellow someplace. And when Paul Sargent and Plains Clothes Man from 4th Street comes in at 3 in the morning and busts everybody for being imbecile, uh, imbecile, nobody really gets angry, just a little illiterate. Most people get in Rome. One of the hundred inevitables whispers, I told you so to Madame John. Savage Rose and openly are bravely blow- blowing kisses to the Jade Hexham Canby Street uh, and to all the mysterious juveniles, and the cream judge is writing a book on the true meaning of a pair. Last year he wrote one on famous dogs of the Civil War, and now he has false teeth and no children. <laughs> I don't think you ought to laugh. I think you're stupid when you're laugh. I really think you're stupid. I really think you got a hole in your head, quite seriously. And if you're going to have holes in your head, it's a funny place to have them at Farrell House. When the cream, when the cream met Savage Rose and openly, he had introduced to, uh, to them by none. Other, he was introduced to them, but none other than lifelessness. Lifelessness is the great enemy, and always wear and, and always wear a hip guard. He is very hip guard. Lifelessness said when introducing everybody, go save the world. Now don't think he doesn't know what he's doing. He really knows his business because this is tied up uh, with this one piece uh, that uh, Dr. Ruchtermacher pointed out to me, Desolation Row. And Desolation Row Row is Christianity. And now listen to what he says. Let me start back again. He is introduced to them by none other than lifelessness. That's with a capital L. Lifelessness is the great enemy and always wear a hip guard. He is very hip guard. Lifelessness said when introducing everybody, go save the world and involvement. That's the issue and things like that, and Savage Rose winked it openly, and the cream went off his, uh, with his arm in a sling, singing, 
So much for yesterday. The clown appears, put a gag over Autumn's mouth and says there's two kinds of people, simple people and normal people. This usually gets a big laugh from the sand pit and White Heap sneezes, passes out, and wakes up and rips open Autumn's gag and says, what do you mean you're Autumn? And without you, there'd be no spring. You fool, without spring, there'd be no you. What do you think of that? Then Savage rose and openly comes by and kick him in the brains and color him pink for being a phony philosopher. Then the clown comes by and screams, you phony philosopher, and jumps on his head. Paul Sargent comes by again in an umpire suit. And some college kid who's, uh, who's read all about Nietzsche comes by and says, Nietzsche never wrote, wore an umpire suit. And Paul says, you want to buy some clothes? And then Rome and John come out of the bar and they're going to, up to Harlem. We're singing uh, today, uh, we're singing today of the Wipeout Gang. The Wipeout Gang buys, owns, and operates the Insanity Factory. If you do not know where the Insanity Factory is located, you should hereby take two steps to the right, paint your teeth, and go to sleep. The songs on this specific record are not so much songs, but rather exercises in tonal breath control. The subject matter, the meaninglessness as it is, has something to do with the beautiful strangers, the beautiful strangers, the barbarians jammed into payphones, and the wholly slow train that, that you are right, John Cohen. Um, Mozart was right. I cannot say the, wor the word I anymore. When I speak this word I, and as if, as if I am speaking of somebody's I, I faintly remember, there is no I. There is only a series of mouths, long live mouths. Your rooftop, if you don't already know, has been demolished. I is plasma, and you are right about that too. You are lucky. You don't have to think about such things as eyes and rooftops and quasimondo. And if you don't feel dead, there's something matter with you. You really are dead. And this, I think, is this isn't, of course, theater of the observed, but it's the same exactly, the same technique. Everything is killed, but when it's done, don't think for a moment the communication is dead. It isn't. It's a it's a tremendous a tremendous tool of communication after all the radi all the rational logical controls are down and out of the way. And all I can say is the kids that listen to this stuff day in and day out uh, and have nothing to anchor to, you can't you can't for a moment think uh, that they aren't infiltrated with this total idea. So now I would tie this very closely up with the theater of the observed. The theater of the observed does smash normal communication, but it doesn't smash communication. It throws wide open a first-order experience to speak of destruction, to give this vague idea of, of, uh, uh, of hope uh, in other forms, and then certainly in more tight forms even to lead you to a more specific direction of pantheism. So this ends now the two lectures on the theater of the observed.